Welcome back, everybody, to FinCast, the podcast series from the Financial Integrity Network. This is Juan Zarate, chairman of Fin. I'm sitting proudly with Chip Ponce, the president of Fin, and we're very happy to be back with you for this FinCast uh, production. Today, we're going to be talking about a recent article that Chip and I uh, authored that appeared in Banking Perspectives magazine, the third quarter of their magazine this year. This is a publication from the Clearinghouse. Uh, and the article is entitled Designing a New AML System, a New Anti-Money Laundering System. And Chip and I wanted to talk to you about why we wrote the article, what its main uh, topic is and main ideas are about, uh, and frankly, walk you through what we think are some very important ideas in the space that we've been trying to share with others, certainly those who've read the article and perhaps those who haven't. So we hope you enjoy this uh, FinCast and certainly uh, want you to enjoy the thoughts and ideas presented in this article. Chip, how you doing? Great. Great to be back. Thanks, Juan. I'm excited to have this conversation as well. There's uh, no better time to be talking about uh, designing a new AML system. I don't know if you, wanted, if you wanted to say that, but the title of the article and uh, and nobody better to be talking about it with. So uh, let's get started. All right, Chipper, uh, what we talked about is is uh, giving the audience a sense as to why we wrote this article, again, what, what it's about, the challenges uh, that we see in uh, imagining a new uh, AML system, and frankly, the, the ideas moving forward, how we actually think this could uh, take place and, and what we're even talking about. Um, and so why don't, why don't we just start with the why, because I think it's interesting uh, that we decided to write this. Uh, these are ideas, frankly, Chip, that you and I have been talking about for years since the time we were back at Treasury together back in 2002, 2003, um, with the idea that the, the current anti-money laundering system, which uh, requires transparency and accountability, traceability, um, needs to be more efficient and can be more efficient. Um, and especially uh, at a time in the post-9-11 environment, where we were demanding much more of not only the system, but those regulated actors like banks, money service businesses, and, and others that are subject to regulation, um, that this is a system that could not only provide more information about threats and vulnerabilities, but that if imagined differently uh, with more information sharing, with sector-wide uh, prevention and protection, and with the use of new technologies, could really be a more efficient way of uh, ferreting out where vulnerabilities lie and allowing for more efficient use of resources, both within government uh, and in the private sector. Uh, and this is an idea, again, you and I have talked about for a while, uh, and that in my mind um, has gained more traction in pieces and parts, and that is starting to emerge in some interesting ways, frankly, enabled by new technology. Because I think one of the one of the gaps, and we'll get into this a bit, has been uh, an inability to, to imagine what this new system could look like, in part because the technologies around data aggregation, analysis, protection of privacy, issues of anonymity, and even artificial intelligence weren't necessarily uh, available or, or widely understood back in 2002, 2003 when we talked about this. But they are now. Um, and that's precisely why we thought it was a good time to lay out a vision given these new technologies, given the stress and the importance of the anti-money laundering system, and given, uh, frankly, the need for uh, some reimagining and some, some improvements. Uh, so from my perspective, I think it was, a, it was a great moment to write this article, and I was obviously very proud to write it with you, Chip. Thank you, Juan, and, and likewise, right, right back at you. The, uh, the question of why, I, I think for many listeners, may be easiest to, to understand by, by taking a step back and, and thinking about uh, the mission itself first. And obviously, we, we've done a podcast about what the financial integrity mission is, what the financial integrity network is doing to advance that mission, and the fact that those objectives of the mission um, are not entirely um, clear to everyone, and that there is, in fact, some disagreement, potentially, over what the objectives of the mission are. But at rock bottom, without, without uh, uh, re- hashing our prior FinCast, at rock bottom, the mission requires financial transparency in order to identify and take action against illicit actors in our financial system, and to use financial information to help identify and uncover illicit networks that threaten uh, our national and global security. That's at rock bottom what the mission is. And 
the why is is really about um, picking up on your points, taking advantage of new technologies that allow us to improve the transparency of the system, and not just for purposes of financial institutions that have to comply with requirements to produce that transparency, things like customer due diligence and record keeping and reporting, but frankly, to assist the investigators and analysts in government that are charged with taking advantage of that information to identify and, and attack illicit networks. Uh, it is both an opportunity to, uh, to strengthen financial transparency in ways that we'll talk about and to strengthen the purpose of that transparency to identify and attack illicit networks through stronger analytics, through stronger investigation, and ultimately more effective uh, action. So to your point, to make the system more efficient. Uh, the second point I want to make beyond sort of the, the, the step back of the objectives and, and the why uh, redesigning the system now uh, is, is so opportune with the technologies that are coming on, on board is to look at um, how uh, the mission itself has become more important in ways that do not allow us to uh, reconsider whether we do it that is, uh, report information to government about suspect actors that may be operating in the system or implementing AML. It's not a whether question, it's really a how question. And the third point I wanna make is that in looking at how we can redesign the system to make it more efficient, that uh, we by no means are rejecting what has happened to date. Uh, to the contrary, we're standing on the shoulders of and building from the experience and efforts that uh, many, including ourselves, have, have uh, dedicated ourselves to over the past um, several decades, yeah. really going all the way back to the 1980s and the criminalization of money laundering. So th this redesign is a design that um, does not reject what's, what's happened. It's an effort to um, catapult forward um, in a, a complementary way and ultimately perhaps a bit of a, of a transformative way um, what we've been seeking to achieve all along. No, I, I absolutely right, Chip. And I think it, it not only reinforces what's been done in the past, but it, to your point, it revolutionizes the way of making it even more effective. And I think that's the bottom line. We're, we're talking about creating a system that's more effective at protecting the integrity of the financial system, protecting issues uh, related to national security, and frankly, a system that, as we said earlier, is, is more efficient, more cost effective, that is actually more sustainable uh, because the, the problems are very real. You know, you know I've talked about this I've been talking about the $4 billion problem, right? Um, King Midas, uh, who was the, the money man for El Chapo Guzman down in Mexico, one of the Mexican drug cartels, the Sinaloa cartel, over 10 years, uh, according to authorities, laundered, laundered uh, over $4 billion of, of assets and money using uh, exchange houses, bank accounts, front companies. Uh, so very real reminder that in the in the drug context, we're talking about mass amounts of money entering the financial system. Uh, if you look at the 1MDB scandal, uh, something, Chip, you've talked a lot about and, and lectured about, um, you have the allegations from uh, Michael Lauber, the Swiss Attorney General, that we're talking about uh, over $4 billion worth of misappropriated uh, capital and assets tied to that uh, sovereign wealth fund and that scheme so important to Malaysia. Uh, and then just recently, the Italian authorities investigating Bank of China and a whole series of activities tied to uh, Chinese illicit financial activity. Uh, they've called it the River of Money investigation. Uh, about 4.5 billion euros worth of uh, potential money laundering and fraud. Uh, and so these cases are an interesting reminder that the problem is very real. It's systemic. It, it, it's global. Uh, and that we've got a lot of work to do still. Uh, and, and that has a lot to do with not only improving the current system, but imagining how the system could be used better. And just a final point on this for the listeners, Chips talked about the mission and its importance, and, it, and it's critical as we think about all of these types of cases and issues. Uh, but, but part of why we wrote this article was the reality that um, as we've talked about the use of financial sanctions, financial measures, preventative measures, and the anti-money laundering system itself, we've talked about the fundamental goal being the protection of the financial system itself. That was not the initial policy design behind the Bank Secrecy Act and, frankly, the global anti-money laundering system. It was a much more 
binary um, system built around uh, support to law enforcement, around building cases, uh, much more linear in terms of institution by institution, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Transaction um, by transaction. Transaction by transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, what we're articulating here, and again, part of the reason why we wrote this article is that the, the very nature of the mission itself that relies on the AML system, that relies on sanctions, that relies on preventive measures um, that hopefully the listening audience knows well, all of that is now being used in aid of what is supposed to be protection of the financial system. That's a very different mission that puts a lot of stress on the private sector. Uh, and frankly, th- that's a whole set of other requirements that, frankly, uh, you know, mandates that we think about uh, the system and how it works a bit more aggressively and a bit more systemically. And I think this article begins to lay that out. Fully agree. And, and maybe a couple more thoughts on the why. Um, one is just picking up on your point about the evolution of the objectives that we talked about in a pre- prior podcast. Um, that those objectives, which have certainly evolved over time, are objectives that are recognized now, um, in part to the great work that uh, you've done, Juan, and others uh, in government um, here, you, but also you. also abroad. And so when you look at the language, for example, of the Financial Action Task Force, uh, where protecting the integrity of the financial system is the justification and the basis of blacklisting exactly. uh, of countries. So we are we – are, Living now at a, at a, at a, in a period where those, that objective is certainly um, articulated and I think well accepted, and to your point, <clears throat> is the system designed to most efficiently allow us to meet that objective in addition to um, the transactional and more tactical uh, objectives that, as you say, uh, very rightly um, underpin the basis of um, the AML system uh, from its origins. Uh, and. And, and that, that, that evolution and objectives uh, needs to be considered uh, from, the per, from the perspective of are we asking for uh, the right set of uh, requirements or the right set of uh, performance measures from all stakeholders to meet what is a more ambitious objective, as, as you said. The, the other uh, second and, and final point I want to make in, in this uh, um, comment on, on the why is that uh, part of the challenge um, that you've alluded to with the $4 billion stories, and I love that, uh, <clears throat> is that <clears throat> we're clearly dealing with uh, massive amounts of um, uh, potentially illicit funds in the financial system, and nobody really knows what, what the, the, the ultimate figure is. Everyone cites the, the, the studies uh, from um, the UN and from the IMF and World Bank that peg this between $1.5 to $2 trillion on an annual basis, and the comparison between that uh, estimate, which is all it can be, um, and the amounts that we recover in forfeitures and, and confiscation. And, and there's obviously a, a tremendous gap there where uh, that performance metric is often held up to say, look, the, the, you know, the system isn't working, it's inefficient. And, and I don't think that's a fair statement, but it's also a data point that has to be considered, right? So um, from, the, from the perspective of how are we doing, um, on the one hand, the, the cases that you cite, uh, there's frustration that that is that that has uh, unfolded in the system. On the other hand, there's there's some comfort that we're now catching those cases. Right. And in the past, perhaps, w- would not have, right? So um, sort of a glass half full, half empty comparison there of how do you look at data points like what you said. But I think regardless of whether you say it's here's evidence of the system working or here's evidence of the system not catching this sooner, th- there are some takeaways that are very real. One is um, the mission is uh, more effective now than I think it's ever been, because, in part because of the attention, the importance that it is now commanding, and that we have a ways to go. <clears throat> you know, I, think, I think everyone has to recognize uh, th- those two uh, uh, takeaways from um, the progress that we've seen, and that in the ways to go uh, category, part of this is about implementation of the current design, where there's clearly been a failure to fully implement uh, what has been the design for well over a decade with the standards from 2003. Um, and that includes beneficial ownership. That includes uh, not only with respect to CDD, but with respect to company formation. That includes information sharing and enterprise-wide risk management, um, part of the global standards now that clearly are not being implemented consistently and effectively across all stakeholders. So there are real implementation challenges that um, have slowed us down. 
And then there are there there are there are design issues, which is what we're going to talk about. Um, to say that um, notwithstanding the implementation challenges and, and the need for institutions and stakeholders to implement standards that are designed to make us more effective, but to also consider whether there are faster or better or more effective um, alternatives or complements to get us there in the realm of financial transparency, effective analysis, investigation, and action. Right. And Chip, let me uh, let me be a cheerleader for you. Uh, mm-hmm. Frankly, it's the you know pride of, of of the firm, Finn, to have you as our president, but also just frankly uh, having you as a, a friend and a colleague for um, so many years. Uh, my best friend, frankly. Um, the fact that you have focused so much of your time and effort on this question of effectiveness, and I think it's important for the listeners to know how. Um, visionary you've been on that and how important you've been to where we are today. Um, the entire FATF uh, new assessment process is built around uh, assessing countries, judging countries and jurisdictions around whether or not their systems are effective, not whether or not they have laws in place or particular institutions on the books, but whether or not they are actually being effective in their implementation. That's revolutionary, and it's beginning to take hold as countries now fall under the weight of these assessments, to include even just recently the United States. So we're going to see the effect of that more and more. Uh, and secondly, the the blocking and tackling that we have not yet grappled with, the dark corners of the system that haven't seen the light of transparency and accountability, um, you know, the, the question of beneficial ownership, ultimate beneficial ownership, company formation, which you were the pioneer on uh, within the U.S. government, all of those things are critical. Those are the building blocks for whether or not uh, the system's effective. And so to your point, we're not talking about uh, wholesale uh, revision of the system. We're talking about building on what's already been happening, improving it currently, but then also uh, you know, allowing our imaginations to think forward as to what a system could look like, especially given these new technologies. So, Chip, what, and we've covered the why. Why don't we, why don't we shift now to the what? And the listeners may be sort of champing at the bit here. To, um, you <laughs> well, know, thanks, like, Juan. Enough, enough as, of the why. Yeah, Let's well, talk about the what. <laughs> as, as always, uh, you're, you're, you're too gracious in, in your compliments. Um, obviously, uh, the, the focus on effectiveness from FATF and, and from others, very welcome. And uh, the result of a lot of people um, working very hard to – uh, steer our attention um, towards effectiveness and not just technical compliance um, at a global level, as well as uh, in the U.S. government, and um, a lot of credit credit that should go around for that. Uh, but does underscore, to your point, the timing of this on the why that it is it is a perfect time to be doing it through the through the lens of effectiveness um, that the global community has squarely recognized. So, with that, the what. What is this that we're talking about? What is the big idea, as you and I often say back and forth? And I'll, I'll take a crack at it vision-wise. But uh, the big idea is to collect as much relevant information as possible into a common facility that can apply sophisticated data analytics to identify patterns of concern and ultimately uh, networks of illicit activity for us to take action against. That, that is, in a nutshell, as I see it, the big idea. And how we do that, we're going to spend some time talking about it. But to me, that's the vision of the what. Um, over to you. Did I get that right? Yeah, no, it's, it's <laughs> better than I could have done. And I was just trying to think about how I would explain it. It's exactly right. You know, one one way of thinking about this, too, and taking a step back, when we talked about this um, in the halls of Treasury back in 2003 with, with folks like Danny Glazer and others, um, we, we did really imagine a common utility model that there would be a, a clearinghouse of some form, either for the Wolfsburg Group of Banks, the major international banks, or all of the major American banks, somewhere that you could um, have the banks sharing their data, doing so in a way that allowed then analytics to be applied against it, to your point, Chip. Uh, and then for that information to flow back to the regulated institutions so that they could understand where their vulnerabilities were coming from, not just within the four corners of their institution, but within their uh, sector uh, brethren, you know, uh, sector-wide, and then also for government to have the benefit of that. So FinCEN, for example, would, would get the benefit of um, what in essence be a, a, a superstar on steroids uh, and systemically uh, put in place. And so that was the idea then, and, and we, we, um, we talked about it, we drove it, we tried to 
sort of catalyze it in different ways. When I left government, uh, we tried to I tried to pursue it in different ways. When you came out and we we started Finn, we then began to pursue this in earnest together with with, with others. Um, but I think what's interesting now is that not only is this idea uh, possible given new technologies and where things are headed, and we'll talk about that in a second, um, but the model may be slightly different in that we may not be searching for a grand big utility, uh, a grand clearinghouse, and instead what you what we may end up seeing, and I think this is where we're headed, is for there to be uh, pilots and experiments around where you can collectivize information, protect it, by the way, for privacy purposes uh, and for pr pr proprietary reasons, I can say that word, and uh, then analyze it in a way that is relevant for a particular sector or community. And it doesn't have to be all the major banks. It doesn't have to be all in one jurisdiction. Uh, it could be segments of a, a jurisdiction uh, or uh, the financial sector. But the reality is, um, you can imagine this uh, occurring and being experimented with in different ecosystems and, and contexts. That, to me, is yet another reason why this was a good moment to write the article, because beginning to see glimmers of that uh, in different ways, which we'll talk about in a second. But it doesn't have to be um, you know, a, a world government-like body uh, that we're talking about. This actually can emerge in some fairly tailored and nuanced ways as a way of both proving the concept and uh, collectivizing both risk management, uh, data management, uh, and ultimately uh, the costs around compliance. Excellent, and uh, obviously full agree with all of that. Uh, might be helpful, Juan, just uh, for those listening to take a step back and, and break down the what and the vision that we've, we've articulated here into uh, some key concepts. And I'm just going to pick up on some of the words that you've said and that we've discussed at length. Collect. One key concept of this big idea on a redesign is collecting more information in an aggregated facility. Second, protect. You mentioned protect that information. Uh, lots of sensitivity around uh, personal data information and uh, transactional and customer data information. Uh, so if we're going to pursue an idea where we put into one facility uh, the collection of lots of financial data, customer account data and transactional data, we have to be mindful of the privacy and the security risks associated with that. So protect is clearly a part of this. Analyze. This is the key, right? Why do we collect? We collect so that we can analyze and figure out uh, what is really of, of utmost interest or concern and maybe fourth, action. So collect, protect, analyze, and action. What is, how do we action the data? And uh, if, you, if you think about each of those. I like that framework. Each of those, it's really good. Thanks. Well, you know, this is, this is the product of obviously a lot of conversation between, between the two of us. Um, on the collect side, you know, one way to think about that is simply expanded information sharing. So when we say collect, are we talking about um, something new? And the answer is no. It's collecting data that we already have at an individual institutional level based on implementation of preventive measures and requirements associated with AML. So we identify and verify our customers, beneficial owners, we monitor transactions, um, et cetera. The collection really deals with uh, how this data that is currently collected at an institutional level can be collectivized into a common facility in order to allow for uh, more powerful um, data analysis. Yeah. And uh, so the, the rationale for that, um, I just want to take a, a couple of examples back to the 0203 timeframe that you reference, where at the time, it's, it's, it's obvious now, and in, in 2004 it became public knowledge, the terrorist financing tracking program was taking advantage of a data facility, the SWIFT database. And uh, it's important to, to, to recognize that because it does, in many ways, um, support the point that you've just made, that this is not new. This has been around a long time, and it's already been proven to be effective. That program, uh, everyone who was associated with it, and certainly all the reporting around it when it became public, confirmed the effectiveness of it. Uh, there was lots of debate over um, uh, how it was implemented and uh, the protection measures that were ultimately proved to be a part of the program. 
But the effectiveness of, the effectiveness of this was never debated. Yeah. And Even the New York Times and agreed. Absolutely. And, and that effectiveness was driven by principle number one, collectivize the data. Without the common facility, there was no program. What's important to recognize as well is that despite how effective that was, the analysis part didn't actually really happen because it was much more of a, of a control F function where we have names of identities and we plug them into a common facility and say, where are they? And once we can start pulling the string, yes, then we can do analysis. But it's important to recognize that that effectiveness associated with the program was without even having the ability to do sophisticated rules and the sorts of things that are now available, in part because of restrictions on um, that particular program and in part because this, the technology wasn't there to support it. So if we know that we can be demonstrably effective with, a, frankly, a, a, a pretty limited version of the design that we've written about, then this can get really exciting in a hurry when you think about that kind of collectivization being paired with the analytics that we can now bring to the table as a global community with the technologies that are available to run not just control F, have you seen Mr. X, but patterns of activities, signatures of transactions um, that, that, uh, that reflect uh, risk that has been, in some instances, reverse engineered from typologies that have been um, uh, detected in cases of illicit finance, and in other instances, artificially uh, um, uh, developed through um, sophisticated modeling. Um, once you start to throw that into this, in addition to having the ability to do a control F on actors of concern, then you can start to really see, I think, uh, the power of this idea in action. Yeah, and I, and I think just to underscore your, your point about collectivizing uh, the information, you know, what this, what this idea is really does sort of amplify what is already a desire by both governments and institutions, frankly, to see more horizontal information sharing between each other, right, the 314B model in the, in the U.S. context, uh, and more vertical sharing, right, between public-private. And we'll talk a little bit about some of those models, like the Gimlet model in the U.K., which is— Or 314A. Or 314A, right, right exactly. exactly. So um, th this is, a, in some ways, to your point, nothing new. Uh, what it's doing is capturing uh, what is both the intent of, of these information-sharing protocols and platforms uh, and rationalizing it around sector-wide protection. Um, and then uh, putting the full force of broader analytics around the data in ways that, that can be incredibly fruitful and, to your point, uh, even automatize um, a lot of this in ways that would make it more cost-effective. And so I, I like the way you've broken this down because it also sort of underscores the fact that what we're doing is taking advantage of uh, impulses in the system that are already present. And what we're talking about is uh, pulling those forward and really leveraging them with a with a, an explicit design that takes advantage of, of exactly that instinct. So uh, there are pockets of this happening, and uh, you, you've mentioned a few of them. One uh, certainly three fourteen A and B A the vertical, as you say, the information sharing provisions of the Patriot Act that allow the government, the U.S. government, to share. Uh, um, sensitive information with industry through 314A, which is named after the provision of the Patriot Act where it comes from, uh, 314A information sharing uh, releases from FinCEN that uh, funnel these requests from law enforcement and administer them in a way that is workable and manageable and meets um, relevant thresholds of importance to effectively pull the financial system for uh, for data relating to the request of interest, a person or an activity or a network of concern. And um, so that is one area where we see this happening. Of course, the challenge there is that it tends to be um, a singular question rather than a conversation. So it's not really an analysis as much as a, a data request. In the 314B context, uh, which you've also mentioned, which is the horizontal information inf uh, financial institution to financial institution, um, clearly, we've seen some institutions take advantage of that, um, but it's been a limited number, frankly, and it's also been largely tactical and reactive in nature. There are some that have attempted to change that, and, and certainly when I was at Treasury, was fortunate to work with a number of folks uh, in the building uh, in our old office, and TFI, and, and 
TFFC in particular, but also across uh, FinCEN and OFAC and across the regulators and, and law enforcement with industry to look at <clears throat> how we might uh, achieve what at the end of the day would be the idea of putting analysts from a number of different banks in a room together and saying, we're going after this network of concern. You mentioned this in a lower cartel earlier. We're going after that. We're going after ISIS. Or we're going after um, uh, whatever the network of concern is. Major and, corruption. And bring, network, yep, yeah. and br bring your analysts that are focusing on this threat and bring your data and let's uh, let's pull this and, and, and see what we can get. You know, that was sort of the end game idea. And 314P was the route that um, uh, you know many have been talking about <clears throat> to achieve that end. And we're starting to see that in pockets. And you and I have both been to <clears throat> conferences and discussions where uh, a limited number of US banks have started to do that around specific threats <clears throat> or networks or information sets of interest or concern. And so those are, those are um, pilots that we see that, that are underway. And the last one that, that I'll note is, again, harkening back to, to the earlier days in 2004 when we had the, the act that authorized the creation of TFI, um, also authorizing the, I believe was the same act, the requirement for FinCEN to conduct the cross-border wire study. And that was a requirement to look at the feasibility of collecting all wire transfer data cross-border, which when you think about the principles of the new system or the redesign that you and I have written about, uh, what a great um, example of that. Collectivization of information for purposes of data analytics. Well, if FinCEN were able to get all cross-border wires, then that would allow them to do the type of analytics that currently no one can do with respect to dollar clearing or uh, cross-border activity involving uh, the United States um, by putting all that data in front of a common set of analysts rather than a fragmented basis institution by institution. And it would put it in the hands of RFIU, Financial Intelligence Unit, which is um, arguably the, the most uh, uh, sophisticated and, and relevant place to do this sort of analysis. And so what a great concept that was. And, and happy to say that that concept has moved forward in the feasibility study, but it is um, clearly needs to get pushed over the fence and do, and do a hard requirement past a, a proposal. And you know, I think that's something that we might be seeing from FinCEN in the days ahead. We have seen that exact um, initiative undertaken by other financial centers, namely um, Australia and Canada, at thresholds that are higher than what the U.S. has considered. Um, and that has proven uh, to be certainly helpful to protect the integrity of those financial systems. FinCEN has, as I know, talked in the past with those countries, and hopefully there'll be more coming out on that. But these are all examples of the idea of collectivizing uh, information across institutions in order to do more sophisticated, robust data analytics to action um, against illicit networks of concern. Yeah, and, and Chip, just to underscore what you're saying, it's it's about the information sharing that's sort of a, that's a code word that gets overused and becomes so bland you're not quite sure what it means but in this context it's about to your point collectivizing across key sectors or or uh, stakeholders and to to share aggressively uh, and also in a preventative way so that we're not simply reacting to a particular case or one particular data point but looking at systemic vulnerabilities a really good example of this, something, again, you and I have uh, heard about and, and talked to folks about, uh, is the uh, 314B process on human trafficking that Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Standard Chartered had, had uh, pioneered and have worked on. Uh, and frankly, I think they've seen real results in understanding vulnerabilities around human trafficking networks that are taking advantage of their banks and systems or where vulnerabilities might lie, where they would have been blinded had they not um, uh, shared that information. So to your point, it, this is already happening. And it's also happening between public-private in that you see, uh, for example, the Gimlet, as I, as I described, is the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force uh, in the UK, uh, which is a, a much more sort of aggressive model around information sharing in real time. And I think one of the things in, in the design that we've suggested is that the information sharing is um, it's not only collectivized, automatized, um, and analyzed in aggressive ways, but also is in real time, right? We're not waiting 90 days uh, or 160 days, 130 days, whatever, for uh, a feedback loop. This, this is a, a system where you can imagine almost automatic f feedback if it's designed properly and with the right technologies. And so 
that to me um, is very interesting. And one other point just on, on this as a model, you're beginning to see this emerge in the context of cyber vulnerabilities where financial institutions realize uh, that they need to think along with their counterparts, uh, like-minded banks or other institutions, about uh, where those uh, vulnerabilities are and discover them together and react together. And frankly, they don't have a lot of time sometimes, uh, given the nature of malware or botnets, to you know, sit and contemplate for days or weeks on end. Uh, they've got to react quickly, and they often have to do it with counterparts. And so you're beginning to see um, the development of this model, but come through the cyber context. And that's really interesting to watch because banks are now having to think clearly about how they collectivize their data sharing, how they share some of the defensive systems, and how they then work with government uh, to ensure that banks or other financial institutions aren't put at risk based on cyber vulnerabilities. So these designs and these models, again, are emerging in the system. Um, and again, another reason why we thought this was a good time to come out with the article. Great analogy, Juan. And, and uh, people often cite the growing relationship between cyber and AML, but they don't necessarily articulate the basis of uh, the, the, the shared interest. And right. uh, I think your explanation is right on the money and very clear. So extremely helpful. And this is probably worth another podcast, but it is, we are seeing, I think, not just in the context of design and, and strategy, the blending of the worlds of cyber and AML and sanctions and fraud, et cetera, but we're, we're also beginning to see the, the vulnerabilities combine. And so you've got cyber tools that are being used by uh, illicit actors or organized crime that present cyber risks and illicit finance risk in combination, right? So the, the vulnerabilities are combined by the very nature of some of this malware that's emerging. Again, I think that's probably worth another podcast, but uh, to your point, it's, it, it is going to force institutions to think more uh, collectively around their vulnerabilities and security. Yeah, and not just, and to your point, it is worth, a, I think, probably a whole other session, um, the, the question of shared vulnerabilities, but uh, networks of, of uh, multiple concern, right? So those that are doing this on, on a cyber basis are also often working for on behalf of or are themselves. Um, organized criminals de de dealing with a whole bunch of money laundering predicate offenses, money laundering itself, sanctioned activity, um, et cetera. So um, certainly a lot of blend there. But uh, the, the, the trail that's been blazed in some respects through um, information sharing by necessity in cyber, to your point, um, certainly of interest and relevance uh, to the conversation of information sharing for AML. Um, and something that, that I know authorities of Treasury, when I was leaving there, were increasingly sensitive to and, and, uh, and starting to, to take a hard look at. So a great conversation on the what. Yeah. We've, we've covered why we've written the article and, and the big idea associated with collectivization and, and protecting data and for purposes of broader systemic analysis and then actioning against illicit networks and closing vulnerabilities. Uh, why hasn't this happened more aggressively? We've talked about uh, 2002, 2003, the terrorist financing tracking program. We've talked about the FinCEN cross-border uh, feasibility study. We've talked about um, having joint analytics against common um, database for information sharing, which frankly is, is a, a basis of the creation of TFI and the whole evolution of the Office of Intelligence and Analysis within TFI. So why has this been more difficult? Why haven't we seen more of the pilots, as you're describing it, um, take, take root? Um, let's talk about that. What are the challenges to implementing this idea, this but, set of ideas? And it's a great way of framing it, Chip. I think one way of thinking about it is through the lens of opportunity. And it, I think we can get, through, get to the challenges, and I think uh, those who are expert in the field will, will be able to identify several of these along with us. But um, I think it's worth pausing for a moment just to, to point out the opportunities around new technologies, because you've described the, the impetus for information sharing, collectivizing it, the ability to analyze it. Um, but I think we're now at a stage, especially with the emergence of fintech, um, to be thinking about new payment platforms, uh, new screening capabilities, um, new data analytics that actually sort of make this very real. Um, and I think it's unlocking the imagination, frankly, that was probably the uh, highest barrier to entry 
to uh, reimagining uh, the AML system. And the fact that you have now financial institutions around the world, not to mention central banks, thinking about blockchain technology and ledger technology and digital currencies um, as, a, as a way of uh, making payment systems, for example, more efficient. Um, the fact that you have cloud-based technologies that allow you to store mass amounts of data uh, in different ways and to access it in different ways. Uh, the, the fact that you have biometrics uh, now coming online as part of uh, personal identification and identification tied to banking, mobile banking services, for example. And, and the idea that you have artificial intelligence or learning capabilities around automated analysis uh, is also a really uh, important innovation. And you've seen that with Watson. You've seen it with some of uh, the Google investments and technologies that are emerging. <clears throat> and so all of this is now imaginable, which in my mind is probably the first order of battle in terms of why wasn't this possible. Uh, part of it was people couldn't see it. Uh, and now people are seeing it in, in, in bits and pieces, in part because of these new technologies that, that really do force us to think about new designs, regardless of whether or not you think the current system's working or not. These new technologies are taking us to new places with respect to how payments work, with respect to trade finance, with respect to cross-border uh, value flows. Right? They're, they are going to change the way uh, uh, you know, banks and financial institutions do business. So with that, we're able to then reimagine a compliance risk management system layered on top of that or taking full advantage of it that really is innovative and revolutionary, which again is part of what we were trying to do in the article. But there are other challenges, of course, Chip. Um, uh, you know, the, the fact that, the, as we said at the start, the system itself legally, culturally, bureaucratically was built around particular types of requirements. And you and I have heard this from financial inst institutions around the world. Um, you know, what is the incentive for any institution to go above and beyond what their current requirements are to file SARS and to do the standard screening and to do the CTR filing? and to make sure they're just not getting in trouble under the current system. Why go above and beyond and begin to share information in ways that uh, not only demonstrate where more vulnerabilities may lie, but could put the bank or the institution at risk uh, in the context of privacy laws or, or financial data sharing uh, restrictions? Um, and so sort of another barrier to entry is this question of whether or not the system even allows for innovation. Uh, again, this is an interesting moment because you've got regulators like the FCA in the UK allowing for regulatory sandboxes, the ability to innovate a bit, uh, a sense that there needs to be a little bit of risk-taking around how compliance, risk management, and other types of financial regulation is done. And so the regulators themselves, including FinCEN, allowing a bit more innovation and space for the technology companies, uh, the Bitcoin wallets and others to, to innovate and to see where it goes. So I think I think those two issues, in my mind, are really important. There are, there are others, and, and, and no doubt you've got some in mind, Chip, but those, in my mind, are, are the important factors. The ability to imagine it, especially with new technologies, and the very nature and design of the system, which has uh, not created incentives, frankly, for people to go above and beyond what the current requirements uh, allow and, and require. Great summary, Juan, of uh, the challenges that we've seen to implement implementation of data collection and analysis using uh, new technologies. And I, I, I had a very similar list. Uh, certainly, you covered the incentives, and, and that may be the most important. And I would just simply add to not only um, are uh, institutions potentially uh, lacking incentives to do it, um, but they may be uh, diverting resources away from places where they know they are being examined. So to the extent that you know that you have to do the CDD and the record keeping and the reporting, the ML program controls, and they do not specifically require a 314B type of information sharing um, facility and, and uh, ultimately the, the joint analytics that might come from that, um, then uh, your resources um, as a matter of just good practice and governance on regulatory compliance are going to be focused on where your regulators uh, don't have any given the system. And as long as you have options on the collectivization that we're talking about and requirements elsewhere, it's hard to argue 
that you should be diverting resources away from hard and fast requirements into what might be um, optional arrangements, um, even if it ultimately leads to a more effective system. So I, I think that's absolutely fair. Um, another point is just looking at the exposure that that then creates. If you do choose a more aggressive information sharing plan in order to uh, try to take advantage of some of these technologies, as you've, as you've explained, um, beyond taking resources away from other areas where you know you're, you have hard and fast requirements, you've now expanded the, the, the canvas for uh, regulators to appropriately examine. I mean, you, you, you can't just do this even as an option and expect that there shouldn't be any controls. There have to be controls on this. We haven't talked much about data protection. That's obviously going to be really important. And a key compo component of these facilities is making sure that you have the systems and controls to, to protect the information that you're sharing and, and that your counterparties uh, do as well. Regulators have to be on top of that. And, and so if you're the institution, again, here's a negative incentive, right, a disincentive to doing it. So, you know, incentives are a big part of this. Uh, we, we talked about legal. Um, there's a lot of legal ambiguity, I think, around what's permitted and what isn't. And uh, some conflict, certainly globally, when you look at um, data protection and privacy interests, which are very real and important and have their own authorities that are very aggressive. Um, and the AML side of the house where data um, sharing and information sharing is essential to getting um, on top of cross-border networks. There's a, there is a conflict there. There's, There's no question. There, and so yeah. um, making sure that there are facilities where those conflicts can be reconciled in ways that provide clarity for institutions that don't want to get afoul of, uh, forget their regulator on AML-CFT, their data protection and privacy um, requirements and regulators that are looking at that. You know, that. That is a legal conflict that continues to, I think, uh, present real challenges for institutions. Um, operationally, we've talked uh, a little bit about um, uh, this in the form of new technologies or, or creating new operational um, possibilities. But the, the reality is that uh, operationally you, you have institutions with different data systems and um, often um, getting even the same enterprise to share data within one enterprise um, just mechanically can be really hard to get systems to match up and talk to one another. And then once you've got the, the data in a position where you can aggregate it through, uh, through a hardware infrastructure, um, the the software compatibility has to be there as well. So you know operationally, th th it's not necessarily an easy lift, even if you have the legal clarity and uh, and the incentives aligned. And then finally, what you mentioned on on culture, uh, to the extent that um, this has been seen as a space, this being uh, financial crime compliance and AML as a how do I stay out of trouble, um, that this is not um, the mindset that you want to bring into the opportunity that we've been we've been presenting. Rather, you want the mindset of uh, entrepreneurialism, as, 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 you, as you've said, and creativity and, and more aggressive ownership in a way that um, hasn't necessarily characterized the space historically, but as you and I have said at length um, in, in other fora, is starting to change. We start to see that, um, as, as we've said elsewhere, AML is the cool place to be. And there's a lot of talent and a lot of energy and a lot of creativity and a lot of entrepreneurialism I'm focusing on AML for all of the excitement uh, associated with the possibilities that we're discussing, as well as others, that um, the increasing importance and complexity and uh, challenges associated with what is seen now as, a, as an absolutely essential mission um, has drawn a lot of creativity and talent to the space. So, you know, that's starting to change, too. So these are very real challenges, but challenges in which um, we're starting to see some movement in, in the right direction, I think. Yeah. And, and, and one other just point to make on this, Chip, um, and and the institutions we deal with uh, talk about this and we've heard it in conferences, you know, there is not only the current um, restrictions, current regulatory environment, but there are real sunk costs to the current system, right? Banks, institutions have invested a lot of money in their current systems. Uh, the, the institutions haven't built their systems around the design we're talking about. And so there's just the, there is just the reality, the nuts and bolts of how do you put a system like this together in a cost-effective way where ultimately you and I would agree you see cost savings, uh, but it's certainly not going to be upfront, and it certainly doesn't uh, disallow or, uh, or um, excuse institutions from doing what needs to be done in the blocking and tackling of compliance currently. So th that's a hard uh, circle to square, however you want to describe it, because this is really about cost-saving and shared risk long-term. 
Uh, but that may not be immediate, and it may be hard for an institution to justify taking that leap. That's why I think these bite-sized dimensions of pilot projects really becomes the way forward, as opposed to asking for a complete redesign that is macro-revolutionary and global all at once. And I think that makes it uh, a, a bit harder. Couldn't agree more. And and uh, maybe to frame that, something that you and I have talked about at length and, and we've used, again, externally with clients and others, the notion of, uh, of two tracks where uh, financial institutions have been operating under a track of expected performance that has continued to evolve as the mission has evolved. But um, at rock bottom is about complying with preventive measures from global standard centers and uh, the implementing regula regulations and laws and financial centers around the world. Um, they're going to have to continue to do that. And while those requirements continue to evolve and have become tougher, um, and, uh, and enforcement has become tougher. Um, they represent um, track one of do what uh, is legally and regulatorily required and uh, consistent with the expectations of your regulators. And there is less and less forgiveness for um, uh, subpar performance along that track. That's track one. And institutions have been focusing more attention on that because there's more and more exposure under the enforcement environment in which uh, there's less and less tolerance for, uh, for, for neglect. Higher expectations. Exactly. No but it, it, in order to get to, this, to, to these pods that you're talking about, um, the point that you don't get excused from track one means that uh, you have to accept as a financial institution and as a jurisdiction that uh, this is additive, at least initially. It's an additive. It's not um, uh, a replacement. So it is uh, track one plus, or as we used to say in, in sort of the FATF context, technical compliance plus effectiveness. So you've got to technically comply with all the rules and regulations and, and meet the expectations of your regulator. And as a regulator, uh, make sure that, um, that your financial institutions are meeting the legal requirements of the jurisdiction. There's no, there's no forgiveness in that. But you have a plus here to say you should also start these pilots of aggregating data with, uh, with, with partners of, of a shared mindset around similar risks or concerns or vulnerabilities. And that track two is going to be additive. And getting your arms around that from a cost perspective, from a, from a, uh, a time and attention perspective, from a regulatory exposure perspective, um, all of this is additive. And that creates the disincentive that we've talked about. But for those institutions and stakeholders that have the vision of understanding that, to your point, in the long term, that if you don't start track two, you're never going to get to a position that we've heard increasingly from industry uh, in particular that they're interested in, which is getting the efficiency gains associated with the new technologies that you've discussed. And, and the only way that you start to, <clears throat> I think, um, make this more of a replacement than an additive regime is to prove the viability of collectivizing the data and doing uh, shared risk, shared analytics through these pilots that as they turn on and demonstrate the effectiveness of the concept um, may allow for some forgiveness on uh, what has been a more transactional approach um, by systems that can supersede them effectively. And that requires a two-track approach in at least the short to, to medium term. And as track two matures, there may be, uh, in my mind, there will inevitably be a basis to reconsider track one, not throw it out, right. but to amend it and skinny it down in ways that ultimately make this system more efficient, not just on the results of, of effectiveness, but on the cost of getting there. Right. Uh, super well put, Chip, and I often use your uh, track one, track two model uh, when talking to clients and, and others in the, in the space, because I think it's a really neat way of, of putting this. And again, part of the reason we wrote this article was to uh, catalyze the discussion around what that track two looks like, right? And uh, we did a couple things in this article which are, are worth noting. Uh, one, we've laid out the core principles for what that evolution looks like. Um, I think you and I are both hoping that uh, these principles become the maypole around which others dance and develop uh, these ideas and these pilots because I think th these are seven core principles that lay out what any of these pilots or, or versions should look like. And, and I think it's fair to say uh, the CHIP, both as a firm and, and uh, through our work at the Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance, uh, we're trying to, to find and, and working with a, a variety of players that either have existing platforms where this kind of um, uh, idea and design can be implemented, 
uh, beginning to explore some consortia ideas uh, and clearinghouse ideas that, that may be very interesting. And then working with jurisdictions that have a, a real deep interest in understanding their own vulnerabilities and helping think through um, what what those potential pilots might look like. And so from our perspective, uh, those are those are opportunities where these pilots can be very real, um, and I think we're trying to drive it. Chip, is it worth worth me just laying out those seven core principles? Do you think it's, it's worth it just quickly? Absolutely. I think we touched I, I, on a I, I lot was, of them. Exactly. I was just going to say that uh, – uh, nobody has articulated um, the what of this vision better than you, and and I think the seven principles that, well, uh, us, that us, but but these principles really coming co- coming from you uh, in response to the conversation that we've had over the years, uh, in my mind, start to ground a lot of these concepts in ways that I think the listenership will will find useful. So if, if you don't mind just uh, running through each of the seven, I think that that's a great way to. To, uh, to capture it. Yeah, and it may be a, a good way to, to end this. And uh, apologies to the listeners if, uh, uh, if, if we didn't do this earlier, but I think this is a helpful way of, of thinking forward as you think about this new design. Um, and, and these are seven core ideas, Chip said, that are supposed to ground these, these new models or, or ideas. The first is a recognition in law practice and design that this is a preventative system and it's a risk-based paradigm, right? So we are uh, explicitly moving away from a reactive binary model, um, and and there needs to be in this context a, a true commitment in law and practice to risk management, and frankly the allowance of financial firms to experiment uh, in this. But the 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 grounding of this design has to be around the ideas of prevention, protection of the uh, of the financial system, and a, a commitment to a risk based paradigm. And just to just to add there, um, exactly right starting point in my mind. And a complete affirmation of the work that has gone on globally to explicitly embrace the risk-based approach and to look at the fundamental objective of protecting the integrity of the financial system through preventive measures. So really an affirmation of the work of so many um, articulated in the first principle. Right. And an acceleration of what we've talked about, right, building on that work. Second is um, a design that is about sector-wide protection. So we're not we're not talking about institution by institution or bank by bank or even jurisdiction by jurisdiction in some cases. We are talking about protection of the system, and that requires you to look at sector-wide models. And that can be in the global banking context. It can be the insurance sector. It can be money service business sectors. It can be investment firms. Uh, it can be whatever ecosystem you could imagine of shared interests and shared vulnerabilities. It is a model built around sector-wide protection. So that's the second uh, completely agree. And again, sort of tying this back, um, a, a sort of an evolutionary step forward from a concept that is part of the global standard framework, which is enterprise-wide risk management. And, you know, a, a useful starting point to consider um, the experience of global financial institutions that have already started by necessity the collectivization of information that is essential for enterprise-wide risk management. And, and, and you know better than anyone, you know, the models that we've seen on global FIUs that are inside of the global banks now. Um, working on the back of the core principles that you're reading through, that enterprise-wide risk management um, requirement um, is driving the beginning of what what you're describing here with with uh, an evolution towards sector-wide preventive measures. Exactly. Uh, the third principle is more data and more sharing. I, I think that's been obvious in our conversation here, but part of this is is automatic sharing of information. Uh, you mentioned the cross-border. Uh, transactions, uh, which can be a, a, a great and um, healthy source of, of information, but also real-time feedback loops uh, that makes us much more dynamic in terms of the data sharing that we're that we're imagining. So that's a third core principle. And ideally, a conver- far from shortening the reaction times and the feedback loop, turning it into an actual conversation where you've got common analysts in the same room pounding the data. That's the ideal. Right, and and and. Uh, automaticity that allows for learning around vulnerabilities. And that's the fourth principle, automation and analytics as drivers. Um, you know, moving away from a, a case-by-case or a, a paper-led model uh, to one that uh, allows for greater understanding of where vulnerabilities are currently and where they're evolving. And we know, uh, Chip, certainly from our experience, and uh, listeners will know, the, the bad guys continue to adapt they continue to be more sophisticated, um, and to understand where the vulnerabilities lie, you need uh, better analytics and, and more automation to deal with the mass amounts of data we're talking about. 
And there, you know, the the, the information sharing, um, the relationships that are necessary to facilitate that information sharing and the sources of the information, often those sources are also sources of great uh, learning on, on algorithms and rules. So you can imagine a scenario where a consortium isn't only coming together to share analysts and to share data, but to share the algorithms, the rules, and uh, the, 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 the software that they're using to identify activities of concern, right. just, as, just as valuable often. And you can imagine if you had a common clearinghouse or utility where the analytics would just be implanted on or, or through that clearinghouse or, 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 uh, or platform. Or circulate, benefit, broaden those rules, uh, those algorithms that are proven to be most effective. Yeah, exactly. Uh, fifth principle, Chip, is enhanced privacy and protection. You talked a, a good bit about that. Again, any model, uh, if it's to work, has to think through the ability to protect sensitive customer data, uh, the ability to protect against cyber uh, vulnerabilities. Um, and certainly if we're talking about any form of data aggregation, there are going to be privacy, civil liberties, uh, sensitivities built around it. So um, you, you have to design this in a way where uh, privacy um, and protection isn't some ancillary issue you worry about last. It actually is a core principle up front. And actually, new technology can facilitate that, where you're able to do broader analytics around bigger data, but also protect uh, customer identification, customer data. Um, that has to be a core part of any design. The sixth, and, and we'll, we'll, we're almost done here, uh, risk sharing and, and management. Again, uh, much of this has to do with the sector-wide idea of, of sharing risk, sharing data, of course, um, but also between government and the private sector. Um, it's been a big issue in the de-risking debate, uh, lots of discussion around whether or not the government can do more to help both inform and share risk. Um, and certainly in any model that's, that's created, there has to be a sensibility that what we're doing is we're not only basing this on a risk-based paradigm, but it is about risk sharing. Uh, and frankly, the government has to be a part of that in setting the ground rules if not facilitating the information sharing and models itself. So that's a core principle of any model moving forward. Integrity, and just a color comment on that one, that uh, the risk, the shared risk space, important in my mind to distinguish the risk assessment where the pooling of information and the analytics can drive an understanding of risk in the form of both specific threats and networks of concern as well as vulnerabilities that those networks exploit um, that is for everyone's benefit. And then that informs risk management in terms of wh what expectations are um, now grounded in proven vulnerabilities that if you then as an institution want to be in that space, you know what it takes and you know that um, you're going to have to put additional resources there. And while everyone stands to, stands to benefit from the common um, uh, assessment of vulnerabilities and, and risks, um, it will also facilitate specialization around risk management because not everyone will want to be everyone's bank. And um, what it will do is, is uh, clarify, I think, and ground rationally the expectations um, around what it takes to be um, providing financial services in what are higher risk environments. And um, for those institutions that uh, do not feel that's part of their business model, um, then don't have the investments to support risk management, then they should be exiting. And for those that want to get in that space, they know what it takes. Right. And Chip, the final principle here, the seventh, is uh, all about cost sharing. Uh, the idea here is that to have a system that's both effective and sustainable, um, you have to have a, a model that allows for the sharing of, of costs. As we've said before, this isn't about uh, exiting current obligations or imagining you can you, you can get out from under having to invest in the compliance risk management space. Uh, far from it. Uh, but we do have to think about a model that allows for collectivizing uh, risk management and systems and data uh, management that, that begins to off-ramp some of the long-term uh, costs institution by institution. Uh, and this could be revolutionary if it's done properly and that you do uh, have a, a cost-sharing model that makes us all not just more effective but more sustainable. Fully agree. And here I often see costs and effectiveness as, um, as complements where historically they've been viewed as adversaries. Uh, oh, if we're going to invest less, then we're going to be less effective. I think there's enough opportunity with the technologies that you've described 
and the opportunities that we've covered in the podcast to um, realistically predict that we can be significantly more effective and less costly at the same time. And a lot of that is about um, efficiency, uh, gain through collectivization, and a lot of it is about learning associated with what are going to be more advanced, I think, outcomes in ways that can inform systems to become more effective and less of a uh, uh, the entire field learning by doing in pockets, having the entire field benefit from um, what will be accelerated learning through a shared facility. I think that's exactly right. So um, ultimately a complement between uh, collectivized risk uh, sharing uh, assessment and management facilities and ongoing individual institutional responsibilities to manage risk. Um, you know, we're never going to get away from that dualism, but I think uh, the extent to which we can collectivize will make our systems at an institutional level more effective and um, less costly in the long run. Yeah. Jib, I, I, um, I think part of the reason we wrote this article, too, is not only are we, are we passionate about these issues, but um, we see the opportunities in the space. And I think the really exciting part about um, what we've laid out uh, on, on this FinCast as well as in the article is that this is really a, an arena of opportunity, great opportunity from a technology perspective, great opportunity from a compliance risk management perspective, um, really interesting uh, in, in terms of uh, financial innovation itself, right? So this, this is a space where um, all of the exciting things happening in, in the world that we care about, AML sanctions, compliance risk management, are, are blending. And uh, this is really an attempt for us to, uh, to articulate that um, and certainly, as, as you and I do on a daily basis, we are trying to find opportunities and ways with clients and with jurisdictions and with clearinghouses to figure out um, how to bring these ideas to life. Uh, and that's one of the missions of FIN, uh, certainly one of, the, one of the big ideas that you and I are trying to drive and that our whole team is trying to drive. Really proud to be doing it with you, proud to have written the article with you, uh, and really hope the listeners enjoyed this. Uh, certainly love being with you, Chip. Well, nobody, nobody better to talk about these issues with and, of course, to, uh, to carry them forward. So, as always, hugely grateful for your friendship and, and your partnership and looking forward to putting these ideas in action with you and our clients in uh, the days and months ahead. Perfect. Wait for more from us. Uh, this is the latest FinCast. I'm Juan Zarati with Chip Ponce. Look for us on financialintegritynetwork.net. Uh, and uh, we look forward to the next FinCast. Have a great day. Thank you.